This morning, we begin Season 2 of Inside Politics, featuring a return of the panel, Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sons of Vaughn Palmer, to talk about everything from sightsee to ride-sharing. Later in the show, a dive into the BC Liberal leadership race of one of the contenders, Mike Young. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Center. Here's NL News Director, Shane Woodford. Good morning, and thank you for listening. To you. This is misfire there. Apologies for that. Uh, good morning. Thank you for listening. Pleasure to be back on Inside Politics. Uh, also a pleasure to be joined on the phone by both Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Shane. Good to be back. Yeah, it's good to hear your voices. Uh, trust you guys had a great holidays and happy new year and all that? Yeah, really good. <laughs> awesome. Uh, let's start off the top because it's the freshest news this morning. Uh, Angus Reid releasing a poll uh, that may be a breath of relief for the NDP government, finding uh, by an almost two-to-one margin uh, their call in sight see the right one. Keith? Yeah, no, it's, uh, this reflects earlier poll findings in, in terms of public opinion. We've always thought, you know, sight C doesn't really, uh, uh, I think, grab the public's attention as much as other issues such as the Kinder Morgan Pipeline. And this poll reflects that again 52 percent support to the decision to build and just 26 percent uh, uh oppose the decision to continue the dam i think that's the key figure here it's not like there's overwhelming enthusiasm to build site c but there's there's not uh much of a, a, a concrete evidence of opposition to the dam and that gives the ndp a little uh room to breathe although it notes when you break it down to ndp supporters uh support for the building the dam drops a bit and opposition does increase but still the plurality of NDP supporters support building the the Site C Dam, and I think John Horgan's going to feel good about this. Yeah, I would imagine he would, and uh, it would be interesting to see if that support grows or wanes in the coming months or years, depending on the price tag. Fun? Yeah, I mean, even Green supporters are—it's a dead heat among them within the uh, within the margin of error. So, he, he, Horgan, this was a tough decision for Horgan, and I, I wouldn't downplay it. And he risked angering some of his own supporters as he did. But one thing that really came to me when when Keith relayed these numbers to me last evening was, you know, if you go on social media, the echo chambers out there, you'd think it's like five to one against Site C, the anger on this Mm. by advocates and activists and all that is very, very strong. But when you look at the public opinion, I think Horgan read the public correctly. He, He risked angering some of his own supporters who want everything, but... In doing so, uh, what, the number from liberal supporters, 80% of liberals think the premier made the right decision. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's your opponents, right? And they're saying you made the right call. That's not a bad way to proceed. Uh, your own supporters, NDP, they, they say it's a good decision, not by the same margin. And the Greens, it's a dead heat. So uh, I think Horgan is vindicated politically by this poll uh, to the degree that we can trust any poll. And I think this one uh, you know, was taken right after the decision. And the margin is so strong that even if you discount it a little bit, it's still one that I think vindicates the Premier's decision. Although I'm not sure how much he's paying attention today. And uh, we had the news yesterday with the passing of his brother, Pat, who lost his battle with cancer last weekend. And if you know anything about John Horgan, you know that Pat was something more than just a big brother. So I'm sure the Premier's a little distracted right now. And uh, condolences from this program to, to the Premier in this difficult time. That's true. That's true. It's a very sad story. And the Horgan family has been dealing with this for a while. I mean, Horgan in the year-end interviews said, you know, it's a bittersweet year for him, a year of victory, and also this long ordeal for his family with his brother having terminal cancer. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, guys, let's talk about housing, which I think is going to be uh, has been a huge issue and uh, is one that uh, continues to tighten its grip on this province. And I think it's going to be a big story in the year or years ahead. Uh, Andrew Weaver raising some eyebrows over the past week or two when he speculated about the idea of banning foreign real estate purchases, uh, as they just recently did in New Zealand, as well as some other countries around the world. Uh, a, is this realistic? And then B, is this a trial balloon by Weaver? What's going on here, Keith? get attention and he does get uh, media, media attention he does get a disproportionate amount because of the unusual role the green party plays but this is uh, going nowhere fast uh, jordan horgan we talked to him uh about this uh before the before the break and he was adamant that uh, no we're not has uh, no intention of banning foreign foreigners from buying real estate in british columbia carol james the finance minister was quick to echo that so uh, Weaver, interesting idea from weaver but uh again uh, more evidence that for all the bluster and opinions that come from the Green Party, they don't necessarily have any impact at all on NDP decision-making. And you're going to see that, I think, reflected in the budget in February, when Carol James is going to come in with a number of housing measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's hinted at a, a tax on speculation. That's the one specific that she keeps throwing out there. She says everything else is on the table except for this one of, of banning foreigners from, from owning B.C. real estate. That's not going to happen, but other things are in the works. Vaughn, can they, I mean, this is this is such a complex and, and now every day that goes by becomes a, a more of a massive issue. Uh, can the government even come close to, to closing Pandora's box in this thing with their housing initiative? Well, I think they're going to have to give it a pretty big try. The New Democrats got elected promising to deal with the issue of housing affordability, and I think they need to move aggressively both on the supply side and the demand side. I don't think there's one solution. It will be interesting if we get a speculation tax and that if it's effective and if it actually has some impact on what's going on. Certainly, there's been some evidence, <coughs> Shane, that governments, federal, provincial, and local, <coughs> still don't really have a handle on how big this problem is. There's, there's conflicting data. There is evidence of foreign buyers having concentrated their dollars at the very high end of the market and in buying one-bedroom condominiums and leaving them vacant. So I think Weaver is premature at best in saying we need uh, a broader crackdown on foreign buyers. But I do think that, you know, the government's ability to say we're not going there is partly the government saying we're going to take action in other areas. But Public patience in this is running out, mm-hmm. and I think there's some evidence that our government really doesn't know how big the problem is. So they are going to have to uh, try their measures, test and see if it has impact. But if this doesn't work, they're going to have to do something else. And I wonder to what extent uh, that housing issue uh, factored into Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robertson's decision to pull the plug and not run again, Keith. I think, that was, I think that was clearly one of the, the uh, factors at play here. I mean, the speculation had been increasing for some time that, uh, that Gregor Robertson wasn't going to run again. And it's interesting, Vision Vancouver, the political sort of vehicle that got him into office, seems to be falling apart. I mean, a number of key staffers have left that party, notably, uh, I think, the former executive director, as well as former councillor Jeff Meggs, mm-hmm. have left to work for the, for the NDP government. Uh, then you had news uh, yesterday, Tim Stevenson and other councillors not running again. Uh, so Vision as a, as a political entity seems to be lo- uh, running out of gas. And I think uh, Robertson may have also read the tea leaves on a number of fronts that 
the chances of him getting elected were, were diminishing. Uh, having said that, I have yet to see again a credible alternative emerge on the other um, from the NPA side uh, to challenge the vision and whoever they put up as mayor mayoralty candidate. So I think Robertson could probably still have been elected, but I think it would have been a much harder uh, road to hoe here for him. Uh, because of the mounting issues, uh, particularly housing in Vancouver. And it's not just home ownership, Shane. It's, I think, the bigger problem in Vancouver, and particularly with the vision's base, is rentals in yeah. Vancouver. It's almost impossible to mm-hmm. rent something in Vancouver that isn't extraordinarily expensive and tiny. And there's a lot more people renting than trying to buy a house, and a lot more voters fall into that category. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, Vaughn, uh, the Vancouver mayoralty, probably one of the bigger political prizes available right now, uh, and the city, to, to no uh, small extent, uh, interacts with politics provincially. We've got a number of premiers that have come out of the Vancouver mayor's office. Uh, how big a deal is this, and, and what impact may there be if there's a power shift in that city? Well, I guess there's a couple of things about Robertson. You say what you like about his record. Second longest serving mayor in Vancouver, three election wins in a row. Uh, and uh, the NPA is not an impressive political party. Yes, they won a by-election last fall, but they've not run strong campaigns really since the 1990s. So I think uh, both parties are going to be rebuilding this year, and it's an open question who will who will win the prize, as you say. But, uh, you know, Vision obviously has some work to do, and, and to do it in a new realm of fundraising where you can't just get money from developers and the, and the civic unions. You've right. you got to go out and raise it from individuals. Uh, but I, uh, I just have my doubts about the NPA. They've not impressed me in the past. So it's an open question whether the next council will be the hands of Vision or NPA to me. And interesting to note, by the way, on Facebook, Mark Marison, who's uh, one of the engineers behind the Michael Lee campaign, uh, doing a big rumor killer that Michael Lee is setting the stage for a Vancouver mayoral run. But we'll dive into that topic. We uh, talk about liberal leadership race right after this break. More with Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry on Inside Politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Uh, next month is going to be a very interesting one in the provincial political scene on a number of fronts, not the least of which will be the resolution of the B.C. Liberal leadership race February 3rd. They choose a leader, uh, which will provide a new dynamic uh, for the opposition when the legislature resumes. Uh, guys, uh, the December 29th was the deadline to sign up new members. Uh, that has come and gone. Word is the Watson-Lee campaign vacuumed up the lion's share of the 30,000 or so new members that were signed up. So I guess the big question here is, uh, how much of a factor are those new members sign-ups in terms of achieving the goal of winning this thing. Keith? Well, it depends where they were signed up, because the way this works is there's 87 ridings. Every riding is, assi- is assigned 100 points, and a candidate has to win a major- uh, 50% plus one of those points. So there's 8,700 points, so you do the math, you need 4351 uh, points to win. So if you signed up 1,000 people in, in a, a Surrey riding, um, you can only get a maximum of 100 points there. Uh, the trick is to sign up people in a lot of writings so you can win a maximum number of points in uh, in those 87 writings. So even with the new sign-ups, it's impossible for anyone to say right now who's if anybody has a significant lead over anyone else. Uh, it's true the, there seems to be a consensus that Diane Watts and Michael Lee signed up the most. Uh, then there's the question of uh, just because you signed up as a, a member doesn't mean you automatically get a, a, num- a, a PIN number to go vote. 
you've got to actually register as a voter. So there's a, a two-step process here, and it's not clear whether the new sign-ups are going to do that. Some of the other candidates decided to concentrate on the old membership, the existing membership of 32,000. Mm-hmm. Andrew Wilkinson, I think, yep. did a lot of... Uh, uh, paid a lot of attention on that front and, and sort of eschewed the, the mass sign-up of, of new members. So there was, was six candidates in play here, a number of them. No, nobody seems to be incredibly stronger than the other, uh, but it's, uh, and that's why it's impossible to say if anybody's a front-runner right now. I think it's going to be a fascinating outcome. It could very well depend on people's second and third choices because if mm-hmm. nobody's going to win on the first ballot. I think that seems to be the consensus. So who's going to grow with second and third choices as other candidates drop off the ballot? And that's where the jockeying's going to be. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, Vaughn, as far as this new member sign-ups, does, does the, with the light of the Watson League campaign, does that give other campaigns pause or, or no? I think they're wondering what the hell it all means, too. <laughs> There's, Keith made a couple of points that are important. One, obviously, is whether they're spread all over the province, where they would have more clout, or whether they're concentrated on a few ridings, where they would have less clout. And you're right. Keith's right. They have to register to vote, and then you have to get them to vote. And there are barriers in place that were not in place last time to prevent bulk voting. And so the individuals themselves had to had to pay their membership. You weren't selling bulk memberships. They have to register themselves, and then they have to vote themselves. So all of that creates some uncertainty about how much clout all those new names will have. And the other thing is, uh, remember, they number their ballot, right? So no one is expected to get 50% yeah. in the first count. So you're going to see a lot of jockeying, I think, in the next few weeks of candidates trying to make sure they get each other's second and third choices. And, again, I don't think they've sorted through all that. Uh, One thing I think you might notice is you're going to start seeing some sucking up uh, between (laughs) candidates. Like, you know, sort of uh, not going to say anything bad about so-and-so because I'm kind of hoping to get their second or their third choices. And even some endorsements, uh, tacit, if not else, uh, of uh, people's organizers quietly saying, well, you know, I know you're going to give so-and-so the vote on the first ballot, but uh, or, or your first count, but make sure I'm your second choice, make sure I'm your third choice. Um, this can make a huge difference in a leadership. You know, I've heard some suggestions, Shane, that in the, in the last liberal leadership, the order of finish was Christy Clark, who won, Kevin Falcon second, George Abbott third. And I've heard some suggestion from liberals who were involved in counting those ballots that if Abbott had managed to get to second place in the count on the, on the, before the final ballot, that there were enough second choices from Falcon that would have gone to Abbott that, would have, that might mm. have put him over the top. So the order of finish can make a big difference, even on the first ballot, in terms of who wins overall, because the bottom vote-getter drops on each round. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Todd Stone and, and members of his campaign over the last week or two, and I, I definitely get a sense from their perspective that they're doing some heavy jockeying to be uh, the second selection. That's where they think the money is to be made. Uh, Keith, in terms of having this preferential ballot, uh, ranked ballot, uh, and then having a kingmaker or queenmaker among some of the candidates who aren't going to make the cut to the top three, uh, how does that all shake out? Well, again, <laughs> uh, we're guessing here. Um, like, where, where, are the, where are the lines of connection here? I would think Michael Lee, uh, for example, mm-hmm. 
uh, is a, is a federal conservative. He used to work for Kim Campbell when she was in Ottawa. So, and Diane Watts is a federal conservative. So there seems to be probably a link there between the two camps that perhaps Lee's second choices are Diane Watts, and Watts' second choices may be Michael Lee's. And I would think that maybe there's a, a link between Wilkinson and Stone, that the two of them are sort of the, in the middle of the spectrum, um, and there might be some second choices going on between those two candidates. Uh, I don't think Sam Sullivan has a lot of uh, support. I, don't, I think he's most likely to drop after the first count. Uh, the question is, who's going to be the second person to drop? Will it be Lee? Will it be Stone, Wilkinson, or Mike DeYoung? And then where do those votes, how are those votes distributed? And that's where, you know, you, you try to put your, your, your mind in the mind of a Mike DeYoung voter. Who's your second choice? And I'm not really clear who a Mike DeYoung second choice would be amongst the other candidates. So it's, uh, it's sort of a, a giant puzzle here that we're trying to figure out, and I don't think anybody's really got a strong handle on, on where second choice is going to go. Keep in mind, we did some research in the last uh, leadership race and found out that in preferential ballots, almost always the person who's in front on the first count uh, wins eventually. It's, mm. it's usually hard to overtake someone who has a first count uh, margin of, uh, of uh, uh, advantage, but if they're all really bunched up close together, I think that rule gets thrown out the window. All right. Uh, final thought on this. Uh, I don't know if you caught it, but Gary Mason, our colleague, wrote a piece uh, basically saying that Lee is a legitimate front runner in this thing. Uh, any surprises there, Vaughn, if in fact he is? Uh, well, he does seem to have signed up a lot of people. But, you know, the front runner thing, the problem here is that I don't think any of these candidates have connected with the public beyond the people that are active in the Liberal Party. It's an unknown quantity what mm. the public is going to think of the Liberal choice, and I think that makes it a little harder for Liberals, because what they have to do is imagine how the winner is going to play against John Horgan, who has been fairly effective so far in capturing the public imagination. And because there's been so little coverage and so little attention to the leadership, that's an open question as well. All right. I don't think there's any front runner. <laughs> well, that that undermines my question to you, Keith. Then, <laughs> well, I, I just I don't think anybody has any proof in which they can make yeah. a credible case that someone's a front runner. I think uh, I think they're all competitive yeah. uh, with each other, and I think the, the margins between the two, between the the, the candidates, with the exception of Sam, Sam Sullivan, uh, I think are going to be very close. And I don't think uh, just if someone's got twenty six percent and other someone else has twenty four percent, is either of them a front runner? I mean, I, I think uh, the case can be made that nobody really has a commanding lead. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, February 3rd is voting day. Uh, we'll see how it shakes out then. We're going to take a quick break and get the news to the bottom of the hour and a lot more to talk with Vaughn and Keith on the other side, right here on Inside Politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Politics? Dull? Not in this province. Listen in as some of BC's best political minds take you Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Friday mornings at 9.08. On Radio NL, local first. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Guys, special legislative committee uh, heard from unions, Uber, taxi industry, a whole bunch of people on this whole ride-sharing thing. Uh, an interesting needle to thread. Uh, unions, obviously not big ride-sharing fans based on the labor model. Uh, taxi industry is desperate to protect their turf, and there's growing frustrations among the public to just get this thing on the road. Uh, your read on this whole thing and how it may proceed, Vaughn. 
Well, the thing that jumped out at me from the hearings when they started on Monday is that ride-sharing is already, ride-hailing is already here. Yeah. Uh, one of the first witnesses to the Ledge Committee said there are five companies already operating, five apps in Richmond offering ride-hailing, hailing ride-sharing. And Keith's television station went and checked it out. And sure enough, one of these companies uh, has got several hundred people on call through an app Operating in the Chinese language, by the way, and uh, you know you can get a you can get a ride. It's it's uh, under the counter in the sense that the uh, drivers and the vehicles are unlicensed and illegal, but the and and they're in fact being fined, but the fines are relatively small. And the company is thriving. In fact, according to their website, they're expanding to Vancouver Island. So ride-hailing is here, Shane. The only issue is, are we going to start regulating it and legitimizing it, or are we going to keep turning a blind eye to it? Yeah, twofold question to you, Keith. I, I know Jeff Hastings, a good Kamloops guy, uh, works with uh, Global BCU down there in the Lower Mainland. Uh, he, on one front, uh, got turned down for being a Westerner. Uh, yeah. And on the other front, uh, how does the government tackle this thing? Well, yeah, Jeff, uh, quite extraordinary. This company brazenly saying, we're not going to give you a ride because you're you're a Westerner, you're not Chinese. So that's, I mean, that's one issue that's, I think, unique to Richmond. Uh, but uh, this is a real challenge for the NDP because I think it was evident in the hearings. I've never seen, I don't, I don't recall a legislative committee, and we don't have a lot of legislative committees that actually sit. Uh, the joke is they're called standing committees because they never sit. Uh, <laughs> this one got a fair amount of media attention, which is indicative, I think, of the real keen interest out there in this issue, uh, not just in Metro, but in other places, probably in Kamloops as well, where ride-sharing, ride-hailing is a growing issue as the taxi industry increasingly becomes associated with sort of the dinosaur industry. But it was interesting reading the transcripts of uh, the MLAs on the committee. The the real uh, negativity and, and skepticism it was coming from the NDP MLAs on the committee. And I think it's indicative that the NDP still doesn't have their heads around the fact that this is a, uh, something that the public supports, because the tax Taxi industry historically has been uh, a cartel of political interest and, and having considerable uh, sway over political parties. But now that corporate donations are off the table, the, the taxi industry's leverage here, I think, is starting to diminish. They gave you know tens of thousands of dollars to both the NDP and the BC Liberals over the last few years, and uh, you know money talks, but they can't give money anymore. And I wonder if that means that it starts to weaken their position politically with uh, either party. But uh, we're not going to see legislation this spring, as we talked before, this spring is all about uh, budget bills and bills uh, that have to be amended to accommodate the legalization of marijuana. There's a big workload on that, but there's an expectation we're going to see some sort of legislation in the fall. If the NDP drags their feet past the fall, I think this starts to become a festering sore for them. It could blow up on them big time. Yeah, and a public that's very frustrated uh, with the taxi cartels as they try to go home, especially on a Friday, Saturday night after the bar gets out. Uh, let's rush in another topic here, because that's one that's important I think we need to get to. Proportional representation, uh, obviously going to be a big story this year with the referendum in the fall, but the uh, the no side team is, is, is sort of forming up and, and Vaughn, some strange bedfellows over there. Well, the no side uh, will again be led by Bill Tillman, who uh, was heavily involved in... Uh, Bill's got an amazing record, actually. He, he was involved in the two previous no campaigns on proportional representation and won both of those. He also ran with Bill Vanderzam the anti-HST referendum uh, in uh, 2011.
eleven, so his his record is pretty good. Having said that, he thinks this is going to be very very tough because the government is stacking the deck in favor of a yes vote. Uh, joined by Suzanne Anton, a former Attorney General, BC Liberals, and Bob Plekis, who was a senior public servant under both the NDP and the past Social Credit governments. So. Uh, they're straddling the political fence there and getting people from all parties who have their doubts about PR, but I think facing an uphill fight with the government determined to make it happen this time. Uh, Keith and Vaughn's column, I mean, one of the big things behind the sort of the stacking of the deck is the NDP think that this is going to work out in their favor, but uh, in Vaughn's column, sort of noting that uh, as far as center-left votes go in a proportional system, perhaps not so much. Well, no, you know, look at the, the history of B.C. There is a significant right-wing uh, community out there that has kind of been suppressed by the B.C. liberals uh, and, uh, and the Social Credit Party, with the exception of when Bill Venerson was premier. And that is the social conservative movement, which is particularly strong in the Fraser Valley. And it, it's, uh, all evidence would suggest that if, uh, if we go to PR, what emerges is no party forms a majority government. Nobody gets 50% in this province and never has, except for the exception of 2001. Nobody's come close. So Nobody gets 50%, so to get power, you have to broker with someone else. It's quite conceivable that a party like the B.C. Liberals would partner with a social conservative party that developed an anti-abortion party, an anti-gay rights party, and may have to accept one part of their platform as as uh, distasteful as it may be to the vast majority of British Columbians. Uh, meanwhile, you have to accommodate that in order to form power in this province. So this, this notion that PR is going to lead to this magical progressive center-left coalition government for eternity is uh, is potentially a myth in this province because evidence points to there being a significant right-wing presence in British Columbia rather than a significant left-wing one outside of the NDP. So careful what you wish for. Vaughn, any news on the yes side other than sort of, I assume, the government? Well, the government, uh, I think there's uh, an effort being uh, put together to form a, a, a yes coalition, but uh, the one thing here, and, and Tillman's pointed this out, we don't know what the questions are going to be. We don't know what the options are going to be. We don't know whether or not there'll be public funding for all this. So we're still some distance from knowing the full shape of the campaign, and therefore we're into the realm of wild speculation. But I am struck, Shane, going on particularly social media on this one, how many people out there who want proportional representation just automatically assume that the result would be similar to what we got in last spring's election, which is an NDP Green coalition. I think Tillman is right in saying that is not necessarily the outcome. We don't know what would actually happen, but the history of this province is there tends to be a majority of votes right-wing, moderate-center leaning a bit to the right, sometimes a lot to the right, the, there is not much evidence in provincial history that there is a left-of-center majority vote in British Columbia, notwithstanding what happened in the spring of 2017. All right, uh, running out of time, but real quick, Vaughn, uh, sticking with you, uh, BC Hydro uh, <laughs> finances are always an interesting topic, especially those deferral accounts, and it looks like the Auditor General is really arming up to give that a really thorough going over. Yes, uh, Auditor General Carol Bellringer went to a couple of legislature committees before the end of the year and asked for approval for funding to take on a full-blown audit of BC Hydro for the first time through her office, and she's been given that approval. Uh, The office will get about $600,000 over two years to hire staff, and she is plunging into the thickets of accounting at BC Hydro. Some very interesting answers there that will be forthcoming. And Keith, uh, not like this government needs another financial headache, but BC Hydro certainly poses one. Hydro poses one. I'm not sure how you um, 
how you solve that with those massive deferral accounts. But I'll tell you, the biggest problem I think facing the NDP is ICBC, the other crown corporation yeah. that's in a lot of financial trouble. Uh, one thing BC Hydro's got is got massive uh, uh, assets, those dams. Uh, I mean, they, they, they are still a, a very strong company. I don't think the same can be said of ICBC. It's facing some, some uh, the phenomena that's occurring out there in, uh, on, on the road with an escalating number of claims, soft tissue injury, injuries, uh, financial problems internally. So I think you're going to see some big policy changes coming from this review David Eby's launch, and that probably will be a limit on how much you can claim in, in injuries in accidents on the roads of, of B.C. But uh, they've got to take action, otherwise our rates are going to go up uh, significantly. All right, gentlemen, uh, great show. Uh, pleasure to hear your voices again. Look forward to talking to you next week. Okay, take Bye-bye, Shane. There's Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics and Radio NL. On the other side, the B.C. Liberal leadership race with one of the contenders, Mike DeYoung. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. My pleasure to be joined by BC's former finance minister, currently one of the leadership candidates in the BC Liberal leadership race. Welcome to the show to Mike DeYoung. Shane, great to be on Inside Politics. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you coming. Leadership. Uh, listen, Mike, let's get right to it. You are, you're a veteran in the political scene. I'm really curious to talk strategy with you. We had the December 29th deadline to sign up new members. Uh, in your opinion, how big a factor is the new member sign up in the, in the overall term of achieving the goal of winning this thing? Well, I think it's big. I think uh, when you look at it, the size of the party is pretty much uh, doubled. And uh, one assumes that people uh, join a political party for a reason, and that is to participate in this case in the selection uh, of its leader. So there should be pretty good engagement on that front. We're hoping that we're selecting the next premier. So uh, lots of motivation to uh, participate. Also, I think, Shane, uh, recognition that not in all instances, but in, uh, in many instances it's uh, those quote-unquote new members uh, represent people who have been involved with the party uh, in the past as well. Now, there were some some truly new people, but uh, some are people that have uh, previously been involved with the uh, the B.C. Liberal Party. Uh, in any case, uh, a good hiring uh, team uh, out there to pick the next leader. Now, and if uh, if the rumors are accurate, maybe you know better than I do, but it seems like the Watson-Lee campaign vacuumed up most of those. Is that a concern for you or no? Oh, I think there's lots of uh, uh, there's lots of uh, rumors, and I wouldn't place too much stock in uh, in all of those rumors. Uh, I think the Lee uh, uh, Michael Lee's team uh, did a pretty good job, but I wouldn't jump to too many conclusions uh, uh, about uh, numbers. People have a, a habit of inflating those for uh, for their own purposes at a time like this in a campaign. Uh, Mike, uh, it's, it struck me that a lot of the leadership campaigns, uh, some are run a little more crisply than others, but uh, some are really choosing a very election style. You know, the platform, the big ideas, uh, yada, yada, yada. It seems to me that you're running one that really is targeted at reaching out to individual members. If social media out of your campaigns to be believed, you're working the phone like a madman. Talk to me about the different campaign strategies. Well, and you're right, they are different approaches. I mean, look, we, we're we not in a general election. We're picking a new leader for the uh, uh, the party, and, and some of my colleagues have chosen to uh, present a, a platform as if we are in a, uh, a general election. Uh, that's that's their, their choice. Um, I think from my conversations with party members, though, um, they are saying to me, look, we thought we would have a role, or we want to have a role, 
in the development of our next platform. We're not really looking for a leader who's going to tell us, here's, here's how it's going to be. Um, you know, presenting ideas. In my case, I've talked a lot about uh, education, about decentralizing government, uh, about housing availability. Uh, but no, I'm not uh, going to tell uh, the members of the BC Liberal Party, here's the platform that I intend to take into the next uh, general election. Um, you know, we, we had a platform in the last election. Uh, it didn't work for us very well. Um, and I think part of the problem was uh, we weren't as engaged as we should be with the membership of our own party, never mind uh, British Columbians. So different approach. We'll, uh, we'll see how it works. One of the other things that has also struck me, Mike, and I referenced it off the top, you're a veteran, you're a long-time pro at the political scene, you've been around for a long time, and there seems to be a perception from the outside looking in at least a, a division of the old guard versus some people who are pitching themselves as a breath of fresh air. But it also strikes me that some of those people, uh, Todd Stone, Michael Lee, uh, may not have been MLAs for a long time, but they have certainly been involved with the party uh, for as long as you have, or perhaps uh, slightly less longer. Yeah, I mean, you see that in a campaign, people packaging themselves uh, different uh, different ways. Look, the party is fortunate. We've got a, a, a group of talented candidates, uh, all bring a different skill set. You've fairly and accurately described me as a, a veteran. I've been at this uh, next month, 24 years. Um, you know, there's a former prime minister who, who once said, if you're going in for surgery, you got a choice. Do you want the surgeon that's doing it for the first time or someone that's successfully uh, done the operation a thousand times? I think I've learned a few things along the way. Uh, we are in a similar position to where we were in 1996 as a party after getting more votes than the NDP, but, uh, but not forming government. Uh, I know what it takes. Uh, Gordon Campbell uh, asked me to go around the province and, uh, and rebuild and, and build the party, and we did. And the next election, we won 77 seats. So, again, that was a team effort. Uh, but I do know what it takes uh, to re-energize uh, the B.C. Liberal Party. Uh, I know what our party stands for. And uh, I've ha- I have to tell you, Shane, I'm having an absolutely delightful time reconnecting uh, at a level that sometimes isn't possible when you're a, when you're a finance minister or, or, or even a premier individually uh, with the members of our party, who I like to call the hiring committee. Yeah, I do notice that there's a difference in, in how you uh, convey yourself when you're in the, I, I remember in the last leadership campaign, Mike, uh, there was almost a different Mike DeYoung. You seem to get really energized by going out and engaging directly with people as opposed to sort of your ministerial persona. It's different roles. And uh, look, I am proud of what we accomplished as a government. And you know, I've, I've poked, uh, chastised a, a few of my colleagues along the way, for heaven's sakes, um, we certainly were not a perfect government. That's one of the reasons I'm talking to you as an opposition MLA. But we were a good government. And British Columbia became a leader in Canada in virtually every category that matters, whether it's job creation, economic growth, opportunities uh, for families. Uh, again, that doesn't mean we were perfect and there isn't room for improvement. But my goodness, I'm not going to apologize for British Columbia becoming number one under under our watch as government and my watch as finance minister. Mike, uh, this week you unveiled a, uh, an idea to kind of refresh the party, make it a grassroots party. The inference there is perhaps maybe it hasn't been in the past. Is, is that correct? I think that uh, over time, Shane, what happens is uh, people in central offices uh, unfortunately start to, to think they're getting smarter uh, than, than everyone else. You know, a grassroots party allows local constituencies to elect uh, candidates. It uh, doesn't appoint them, doesn't, uh, doesn't pick the, the winners and losers. I'd like to bring the same 
measure of accountability and transparency to our party's own books uh, that I brought to MLA expenses and uh, the budget itself. I think members of the party, uh, people who donate to our party, uh, deserve to know in clear, unambiguous terms how much we've raised, and they deserve, deserve to know how we spent it. And uh, I, I don't think uh, we have done uh, necessarily as good a job uh, at that uh, as we should, and these are all areas uh, that uh, under my leadership we would uh, we would improve in. You took some fire initially off the top, Mike, about uh, your former capacity as finance minister and leaving a chunk of money on the table that perhaps wasn't best utilized to win the campaign. Uh, what's your response to that now that you've had some time to digest the campaign at all? Well, first of all, much of that uh, initial criticism has uh, has disappeared as people have become aware of what actually took place. Uh, because for the fiscal year that uh, did result in a, uh, a larger surplus, people now know we, we didn't leave that money uh, for the NDP. We did something that governments don't often do. We paid back the money we borrowed. People have, I think, begun to uh, awaken to the fact that during the recession between uh, 08 and uh, 2012, we borrowed $6 billion. And I know it might seem old-fashioned, and I have a hard time finding a, a government or a politician who actually believes in paying back their debts, but we actually paid back every cent of that money. And uh, that's what that um, additional surplus uh, was used for, because I don't believe we should consume services, Shane, and ask our children and grandchildren to pay for it. I don't mind, uh, I don't mind the fact that we borrow money to build a highway or, uh, uh, or a hospital or a school, because future generations will use those things. But I don't want to be a member of a party or a government that borrows money for the services that we consume and then asks future generations to pay that back. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, talk to me about housing, Mike. Uh, it's been an issue that I think has really exploded. It used to be something unique to Metro Vancouver. Uh, we're now seeing here in Kamloops, for an example, just an unbelievable real estate market for two years running, people fleeing the lower mainland. Uh, we call them affordability refugees up here. Could your government have done more and done more sooner in order to nip this thing in the bud or no? I think, Shane, uh, I'll tell you what I have uh, uh, said elsewhere. Uh, I, I, I think we should have started collecting data sooner. Uh, the data that is now uh, uh, readily available. I am going to disagree profoundly with experts who uh, suggest that the way to solve this is by imposing more taxes on people. Housing will not be affordable if it is not available. And the way to make housing more available is to build more of it. And people, professors, pundits, politicians who try to ignore that old equation about uh, supply and demand are, in my view, uh, ignoring a fundamental fact. There are 120,000 units of housing uh, awaiting approval in the Metro Vancouver area. Now, if people don't think that building some, even half of those houses, would reduce some of the pricing pressure in uh, that part of British Columbia, well, I disagree uh, profoundly with them. Some of those units of housing, Shane, have been awaiting a decision for six years. Six years. It's why I would, if I was given the opportunity to lead a government, impose a legislative deadline for decisions from uh, local and regional uh, governments. It's time we got on with this. 
How, how would you do that, Mike? Uh, you're talking about a number of different municipalities, a number of different local governments. I mean, the province couldn't get it done on the transit front. What, what makes you think you can get it done on the housing front? Well, uh, look, I don't know if you've noticed this. Governments are awfully good at imposing deadlines on people. Try not paying your income tax. <laughs> you, get, you get a call pretty quick. Government can impose deadlines on itself. It just never wants to. The legislature could say, as, uh, as, as part of uh, legislation, uh, governing uh, uh, municipalities and uh, and regional governments that once an application has been uh, properly filed, a decision needs to be made within X number of months. I happen to think 10 months uh, is ample time to consider and make a decision. Now, notice, Shane, I didn't say approve, because sometimes the answer should be no. Right. But for heaven's sakes, let's get on with making decisions, and if the answer is no, let's move on to the next one. But for housing to be affordable, it must be available. The problem in uh, the Lower Mainland is every time a for sale sign shows uh, goes up, 10 people show up. A couple quick questions here before we end this thing, Mike. Uh, number one, in your capacity, uh, formerly as finance minister, I'm curious to get your assessment of what, make, what might be coming our way next month as the NDP tables its first full budget. Uh, they've got a number of challenges. They're driving black holes on the revenue side. They've also got promises that have some hefty uh, sticker tags on them. So uh, what's going to come next month? Can they thread the needle, in your opinion? Well, you have uh, properly uh, summarized uh, the two possibilities. We're either going to get a whole bunch of broken promises or we're going to get uh, a big deficit budget, one or the other, because you can't reconcile the promises with uh, maintaining a responsible uh, budget. And they've all but, uh, they've all but agreed uh, to that. You know, the other thing, you've already seen the beginnings of uh, an economic slowdown that comes with a, a government that, is consistently saying no and making investment uh, more difficult. So the kinds of revenues and economic growth uh, we saw over the last four or five years aren't going to continue, and the NDP government will have no one to blame but themselves. Uh, now that it's the home stretch, three weeks, maybe a little less, to choose a leader. Uh, your strategy, sir, in the last three weeks? Uh, to continue with uh, reach out uh, to as many members of the party as, as possible and remind them that uh, they are the hiring committee, uh, remind them of the work I have done over 24 years as a, uh, a member of, of this party, uh, a representative within the Legislative Assembly. And then we'll see. It'll be fun, Shane. <laughs> and it sounds like you're having fun, Mike. I'm having a great time. Love it. <laughs> All right. Always a pleasure, Mike. Always enjoy chatting with you. Uh, best of luck down the home stretch, and we'll see what happens at the end of this thing. Thanks for this. We'll talk again. And that's former Finance Minister and current BC Liberal leadership contender Mike Young. And that is also it for this edition of Inside Politics. My thanks to my guests this week, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Mike Young. We'll see you again next week right here on Radio NL. Local. First. CHNL. AM 610 in Kamloops. RadioNL.com. The Valley's first choice for local news.